Healthy Ticket Radio. And welcome to the Movie Ticket Radio podcast. Yes, that's our official name, and thank you for joining. I am your host, J.R. Russ, with... Your friendly co-host, John Records Landecker. Yes, career broadcasters, and he's Mr. Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, we have the Movie Ticket Radio radio station that you can go to at movieticketradio.com and hear the hits you hear in movies. And this here is a podcast where we're talking about the movies, and we're actually playing a few clips of music. Not the biggest hits, because you know what they sound like, but ones that are more obscure. So enjoy those musical interludes as we talk about the songs you hear in movies. And, John, what are we talking about today? Day. Hey, you know, there's a new uh, James Bond movie out, and it's the last one for Daniel Craig, so I think we should talk about James Bond movies. Oh, yeah, 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 because there's so many Bond songs that were hits, but not a lot of them in movies, like we usually talk about one movie. But since you did mention this a while back, I went through and started looking and trying to come up with the songs in all of the James Bond movies. So I think we should do that. What do you think? Oh, I'm up for that, sure. Yeah, I don't even know if we'll get them all in today in this episode, but we're going to keep going. By the way, here's a little trivia for you. Okay. Do you know who the first actor to ever portray James Bond? You know, I know it was on a TV show, wasn't it? Yeah. Not a movie, no. 1953, Barry Nelson. Oh, yeah. Just a little bit of information I picked up today. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, there are two Bond films that are not part of the 25 count that they're counting No Time to Die. Yeah. Because there was... uh, and I counted as a real Bond film, even though it was not an official one, because Sean Connery was in Never Say Never Again. He sure was. As a kid, I read Bond books. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, I loved them. Yeah? Yeah. What was your favorite first? Let me ask you that. I'm trying to remember. It's been a while, like a long while. Right. I think it was on Your Majesty's Secret Service. And do you remember if that was also your favorite one, or was there a- All I remember, whatever book this was- this is either true or a false memory. <laughs> but James Bond is chasing a criminal through France, and he somehow gets a piece of this criminal's clothing, I think, and it has a bouillabaisse stain on it. Mm. And this sounds too weird to be true, but anyway, James Bond tastes it. Okay. And by being able to taste it, was able to determine what part of France it came from. Yeah, that's pretty (laughs) far-fetched. Okay. Unless it was fresh. You know, that's how I remember it, because I was really impressed, or something something similar to that. I do remember that line of dry cleaners that opened up one-hour bondinizing. (laughs) In fact, I've seen bond cleaners. Have you? Yes. Nice. Well, maybe it's a spinoff. Who knows? That's pretty far fetched. I guess, you know, for not having the CSI type stuff they had then, that would be pretty interesting. I thought perhaps it would have, when you started to tell me, I thought you would just say he saw the bouillabaisse stain and there was only one restaurant in town that served it. But that's mm-hmm. even more bizarre. Well, hey, Colt's here. <laughs> Hi, Colt. <laughs> He's a bond dog. Is he? Does he have a bikini and everything? And when you walk him, he's got a top leash and a little thing around the bottom. Yeah. (laughs) 
Okay, well, then that would really be the beginning, but the actual start of the movie franchise as <laughs> it is now. Dr. No, one of Colt's favorites, I can tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1962, and you think if he knew a lot, it would have been Dr. K-N-O-W, but no. No, it's Dr. No. And the James Bond theme is featured in all the Eon production Bond films in different versions, and it was in the gun barrel sequences at the beginning of the films, and the original theme was written by Monty Norman and performed by John Barry in 62 Mm -hmm. in the opening credits. It was a really bad kind of edit. They just faded out the James Bond theme, and they went into the Calypso-flavored Three Blind Mice. Yeah, 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 down in the Caribbean island. Yeah, it was billed Kingston Calypso. Right. They also had an untitled bongo interlude in the beginning. (laughs) It's just kind of a weird opening sequence. You know, I have to say, if I have a bongo interlude, I'd like to know what it's called. (laughs) Just me. Yeah, it would be nice. Come on, title it with something. At least bongo interlude. (laughs) Wonder if it was by the incredible bongo band and their one bongo hit. Uh, What was it? I have no... The Bongo Band? I don't know. Colt knows it. So due to that, Dr. No is the only film to have more than one opening theme. Hmm. And the James Bond theme actually reached number 13 on the UK singles chart for a number also 13 weeks. So wait, so you're saying that Dr. No has the entire James Bond theme as its opening song? Well, not the entire one, because about halfway through it... They oh, just, the three brown lines. Yeah, imagine yeah. having your DJ mixer board, and they just kind of, oh, let's fade this out. Now let's play the bongos for a while. But doesn't that transition then to the island? Well, then it goes into Three Blind Mice, and then yeah. it traditions to the island where, if I recall the opening sequence, this is where the hearse pulls into the country club, where the British agent is playing cards with the boys. Right. And every day at 4 o'clock has to leave so he can check in with MI6. Right, on his secret radio. Right, and that's yeah. where he is eventually. I hope I'm not spoiling this, folks. Oh, um, gee, how long ago was that movie? Yeah, right. I don't... Spoiler alert, 40 uh, years ago. No, would it be 60, 59 years? <laughs> yeah, I know. Years? Yeah. I just, I just <laughs> grabbed the number out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, then killed and put in the hearse, and the three blind mice guys take him away. But that's right, how right. they kind of intro the, that. And it's kind of funny because the first movie, they didn't really know what to do with the music. And when Bond arrives in Jamaica, he is followed by Jack Lord, who is Felix Leiter, but you don't know right. that at the time. But right. he's looking a little right. sinister. Yeah. And Bond goes out. A guy is there to meet him with a 57 Chevy convertible, the black Chevy. And he says that the embassy sent him. So he says, just a minute, I forgot to make a phone call. And he goes back in and he calls the embassy. Did you send a car for me? And they say no. So he knows it's a setup. Right. All of this is going on while the James Bond theme is playing, which is normally Mm. an action theme. And it's one of those where, like, no one will be admitted during the stirring getting your car scene. (laughs) Boy, you have really gone down this rabbit hole, I I got to say. Yeah. Boy. I've only seen it about 100 times. So Man, oh, man. Sorry. That is basically it um, as far as the themes. There is one song that you heard not as a vocal and also as an instrumental, and that's Under the Mango Tree. Right. Also by Monty Norman, and that was performed by Byron Lee, Diana Copeland, and Sean Connery actually sings it at one point. I don't remember him singing it, but now that you mention it, I'm going to go back and find it. Yeah. 
but the James Bond theme is the main signature of it, and it's featured in every Eon Productions Bond film since Dr. No. Right. Now, this is not mm. the what I call the other unofficial and goofy James Bond, and that was the one with Peter Sellers. Right. That movie was just a cluster. It was, I didn't even see it. Just watch it. Just for the sake, there's some good Backrack David music in it, but it is just a bizarre movie. Well, he's not the right choice. It's bad casting. And yeah, and they also have David Niven is in it, who was also considered as James Bond. I mean, I like David Niven, but I don't see him as a James Bond person at all. No. And no. the movie is just bizarre. and dumb. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I do like the soundtrack of it because it's got uh, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass and their Casino Royale theme Mm. and that kind of stuff. Right. So anyway, we move on to the second James Bond movie just a year later because this was such a hit. They said, quick, let's rush another one out. And it was from Russia with Love in 1963. Sean Connery, Lois Maxwell, they both called this movie their personal favorite Bond movie. Really? Yeah. I got a couple of tidbits from it first that I thought I'd head off here. President John F. Kennedy listed Ian Fleming's book as among his top 10 favorites of all time. Hmm. And according to the book Death of a President by William Raymond Manchester, this was the last movie JFK ever saw. Wow. That's a trivia uh, sometime in the future. Yeah, he was killed on November 22nd, 1963, and he saw the movie in a private screening at the White House two days earlier. Before Whoa. he went to Dallas. Jeez. Yeah. Should have made it a double feature. Yeah, really? <laughs> <laughs> what did you say recently? Time versus... Oh, a tragedy plus time equals comedy. Yeah, and there you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that was also the final James Bond movie viewed by Ian Fleming, mm-hmm. who also passed away shortly after. <clears throat> and hoping for an end to the Cold War, uh, producers Albert Broccoli and... Harry Saltzman didn't want the Bond enemy to be Russian, so they created Spectre. Right. Seeking revenge for the death of their operative, Dr. No. And do you know what Spectre stands for? Oh, I used to. Tell me. Special Executive for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge, and Extortion. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, I think it was a very creative uh, decision, and I think it increased the level of evil that you know specter was a group of people not just one right so you had more villains and i think it was a great idea the blacklist refers to something like that as a cabal yes a cabal the headquarters of specter in the movie was actually the main office of pinewood studios the production house in london right now a couple other little things here you know rosa kleb the the agent woman who was kind of crazy Yes. She had the knife in her shoe. (laughs) Right, right. That was supposedly an actual weapon used by the KGB. Wow. Yeah. And Desmond Llewellyn, who appears for the first time as Major Boothroyd, also known as Q, which stands for Quartermaster. Mm. That's the military officer who provides supplies. Peter Burton played the character in Dr. No, and then when he was unable to do the movie, Llewellyn was cast and reprised in the role. right. There was a big helicopter scene in that, and the helicopter carrying director Terrence Young during the filming actually crashed over water and trapped him below the surface. But because it was one of those Bell helicopters with a big plastic bubble, he was in an air bubble and could breathe until he got rescued immediately. 
Interesting. And he was a soldier. He immediately went back to the camera with his arm in a sling. The show must go on. It must. Yep. And one of the evil guys in it was Robert Shaw. Oh, yes. And he originally turned down the role of uh, Donald Red Grant, calling the script rubbish. <laughs> And then his wife convinced him to take the part, and lucky for him, because Steven Spielberg was convinced to cast him in Jaws as Captain Quig after watching him in the movie. That's the way a lot of that Hollywood stuff works. Yeah. You know, somebody thinks it's a bad role, a bad script, but for some reason they get coerced into doing it. You know, this time it was his wife. He does the film. The film turns out to be a gigantic hit, and Steven Spielberg gets him. I mean, that this kind of thing happens all the time. Yeah, it's a pretty yeah. amazing. And on a Tonight Show interview with Johnny Carson, he said he had to stand on a box because Connery was four inches taller. Wow. One last thing, we'll get out of the music and move on. Uh, in this movie, James Bond does not introduce himself as Bond. James Bond, Bond. James Bond. Despite the fact that he does say it in the book on which the movie is based. So uh-huh. I guess they didn't think that they would be catchy. Who knows? <laughs> There's probably another choice that they made that went, hmm, maybe we should hmm. do that. So James Bond is back is the opening theme, which is like the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
Now, how long did we wait for No Time to Die? Five years, four years, something like that? Well, COVID delayed it. Yeah. Uh, I know that. But it was also um, a couple of years in the making, I think. So Yes, I, and I think there was a question. Originally, Daniel Craig said he was done and then changed his mind. So here we had a Bond movie in 62, 63, and here we are, 1964, Welcome to Goldfinger. Well, one of the great ones, if you ask me. Probably and, my favorite of all time. And also, by far, in my opinion, the best song of a Bond movie that's not a Bond theme. Mm -hmm. That's Shirley Bassey doing Goldfinger. Yep. Nobody came close, as far as I'm concerned, in, in the films that followed. They tried, but it's just my opinion, you know. Well, she did two others that we'll get to. The Adele version of Skyfall was pretty good. I mean, it was a different, it wasn't that belted out like Shirley Bassey, but pretty good. Yeah, but Goldfinger, uh, the theme from Goldfinger's got a very recognizable hook. Right. You know, da, da, and you know, immediately... What you know, you know immediately what it is. I mean, these others are okay, but they don't have that big hook in them. Yeah. Well, and you know, I've also said that really to make what I consider to be a great Bond theme needs a couple of things. It needs brass stabs, which is like da-da-dun-dun-dun. Mm. And then it also needs something that has the Bond theme, usually in strings, that's da 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 Right. And you have that in Goldfinger along with a wah-wah-wah, you know, it's a very <laughs> kind of sexy horns, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, you're right. That's one of the great themes of all time. Uh, it was the third soundtrack that Barry composed, and Anthony Newley and Leslie Brucuse wrote it. Mm -hmm. uh, it reached number one on the Billboard 200 and spent 70 weeks on the charts. Wow. Yeah. Peaked at number 14 on the UK album chart and received the series' first Grammy nomination for Best Original Score mm -hmm. for Motion Picture Television. And long before Led Zeppelin became a household name, according to IMDb, the London-based session drummer Jimmy Page was featured as a rhythm player on the song. Well, what do you know? Yeah. It was the most popular Bond movie, raking up at the time $140 million in ticket sales. And it was so popular that some theaters were holding showings 24 hours a day to meet wow. the band. The movie was the fastest grossing movie in history to the time when it was released and entered the Guinness Book of World Records. And many people first heard the term laser beam in mm. that movie at Goldfinger's Lab. And now we can do a scene, all right? Let's, you're, you do a little stage acting. So, Goldfinger, do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond. I expect you to die. <laughs> Very good. Oh, also interesting about the theme. When Shirley Bassey recorded it, she was singing as the opening credits were running on the screen in front of her so she could match the vocals. And when she hit the final note, the titles kept running, and she was forced to hold the note until she almost passed out, saying wow. that she only managed to hold the note after removing a restricted bustier that she was wearing. My, my. Apparently, Tom Jones had the same effect when he was recording Thunderball, too, because he had a big, long note at the end. He was wearing a bustier? I guess so. <laughs> that Tom, he was a guy, you know. He, oh, he didn't yeah. care. The ladies loved him, whatever he wore. And, of course, I think the biggest star of the movie, the Aston Martin. 
Oh, yeah. The cars were great. They uh, were reportedly initially reluctant to part with just two of their cars for the production. And the producers had to pay Aston Martin. But after the success of the movie, both the box office and for the company, they never spent money on a car again. Hmm. Sales of Aston Martin DB5 increased 50%. Uh, There were four Aston Martins created for the movie. Uh, One was owned by Philadelphia radio station owner Jerry Lee. Hmm. And he retired, sold the station, and also sold the car at auction and at the time, it did $4 million, and reportedly, he gave all the money to charity. Well, that's nice. Uh, another was purchased by Andrew Pugilis, I think it is, for 250000 in 1986. And that car was parked at an airport in Boca Raton. Well, you know, as soon as they drive it out of the laboratory, it starts depreciating right away. <laughs> I, I so. know, yeah. And it was stolen in 1997. They kind of think that it might have been some kind of an inside job because they broke into a guarded warehouse at the airport and the car vanished without a trace. Now it's estimated to be worth $25 million. Let's move forward. As reported by The Telegraph, Elizabeth Hurley, just Google Elizabeth Hurley. Just take my word for it, okay? Let me just say she's selling swimwear now. Let's just say purple bikini. That's all right. What has that got to do with this? Well, she's got a podcast now and has revealed new information about the DB5's location. And allegedly, the missing movie car was spotted in the Middle East with a VIN number that matched it, but the car got away. And Christopher Marinello of Art Recovery International told The Telegraph he believes the current owner may not know that it was really stolen. And I say, really? (laughs) I think he does probably know. Elizabeth's podcast, The Most Famous Car in the World, is offering $100,000 for anyone who can help locate the stolen DB5. What do you know? How come we don't have, like, big cash prizes like that? Because we don't have any cash. Okay. All right. Well, (laughs) hey, movieticketradio at gmail.com is our address. Tell you what, if you think you know where the DB5 is... (laughs) You let us know, we'll split it with you and mention your name on a podcast. Oh, absolutely. That's worth dollars at least. Sure. <laughs> well, John, we've just gone on and on here, and there's just so much more to do. I thought this was going to span two podcasts, but I think we might even go three. Oh, yeah. But talking about the cars, I found a really interesting article by autoblog.com, James Rizwick's column, and he has... The James Bond movies ranked only by their cars. The cars were great. So I'm going to cover that. We'll talk about that in the next episode as we head on out. So more James Bond movies, James Bond cars, and a lot more James Bond trivia coming up in our next episode. So remember to like, tweet, subscribe, and all that fun stuff to our podcast. Okay, I'll look forward to that. I'm J.R. Russ. I'm John Landecker. Okay, goodbye. Pussy galore. I think I've died and gone to heaven. (laughs) I'll talk to you later. (laughs) Bye. Movie Ticket Radio.